Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord God, what a privilege it has been this summer to walk through these two chapters in Romans, seeing how much you truly love us and that there truly is no condemnation. And because we're your people, we can be conquerors, victors in every aspect of our lives, flourishing no matter what we're going through. We pray now, Lord, that that would be the reality for each and every one of us as we wrap our minds around this word this morning, and that in doing so, we would truly be encouraged by your presence, Holy Spirit, and that in all things, you would receive the honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the two great German reformers, Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon, were two peas in a pod. They loved one another, they cared for one another, and they were vastly different people. Luther once said of their relationship, I am rough, boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike, fighting against innumerable, innumerable monsters and devils. I am born for the removing of stumps, cutting away thistles and thorns, and clearing wild forests. But Master Philip comes along softly and gently, sowing and watering with joy according to the gifts abundantly bestowed upon him. Melanchthon's friend Camareris wrote of him that as a boy he was gentle, winsome, unassuming, and scholarly with an abiding look of innocence. Melanchthon liked people and people liked Melanchthon, not so Luther. Melanchthon was a favorite in his village on the Rhine, and at the same time, he was absolutely brilliant. In the year 1516, when Melanchthon was only 19 years old, Erasmus wrote of him, What purity, what elegance of style, what rare learning, what comprehensive reading, what tenderness and refinement, what extraordinary genius at 19. He mastered the ancient languages of Greek, Hebrew, Latin. In fact, the great church historian Philip Schapp gives Melanchthon more credit than anyone for recovering a love for the ancient Greek literature of that time. Melanchthon was also a gifted preacher. A, at the age of 21, he became a full professor at the University of Wittenberg. Can you imagine having a 21-year-old professor, okay, uh, where Luther taught? Melanchthon's specialty was preaching Latin to the students who couldn't speak German. And so his Sunday sermons drew crowds of up to 1,500 on a regular basis. Can you imagine? So Luther and Melanchthon were a great pair. Luther knew that Melanchthon was pure gold, and he never attempted to disguise his appreciation for his friend. Nor could Luther ever forget the day when his friend showed him really what the Latin word translated penance really meant. See, penance is an act that we do in order to get favor, right? That's not the Greek word. Melanchthon showed Luther that the Greek word was more properly translated repentance, which means a change of mind which changed everything, and a change of heart. 
And so Melanchthon likewise loved Luther. Luther was his hero. He wrote of Martin Luther, if there's anyone whom I dearly love, with whom I embrace with my whole heart, it is Martin Luther. They were the perfect match. And so they stood together all the way to the end. When Luther died, Melanchthon gave the homily to a vast crowd over his grave. And when Melanchthon died a few years later, his body was lowered into the same grave. They are buried side by side at the Castle Church in Wittenberg to this day. You can go visit it. So where did Melanchthon get the strength? What made this very gentle and lowly, retiring, brilliant man stand with Luther against the world? The heart of the text we will now consider, verse 31, gives the answer. If God is for us, who can stand against us? In his lectures and correspondence, that verse is quoted more often than any of Melanchthon's writings. It hangs on his study wall in Wittenberg, where visitors can today see it. These words are the crowning expression of confidence in a text that express, exudes Christian confidence more than any other in all of Scripture. So as we examine this final section of Romans, we will see why it meant so much to Melanchthon, and we will see why it meant so much to millions of Christian believers throughout this century. I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 8. Uh, you can also look at it in the back of the bulletin. We're also going to go back a little bit, just a quick review, looking at what Sean pre preached on last week, because verse 31 and belong is preached within a context of Scripture. Sean preached on the future grace and glory that awaits us in Christ, and that section concludes with that glorious statement that in verse 28, it reads, And we know that... Those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's an immensely confident statement. All things we know work for the good who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's so familiar to many of us, we even oftentimes just quote the reference. Well, you know Romans 8.28, right? You know? You having trouble today, my friend? Chin up. Romans 8.28. Uh, it might be good advice, although I'm not sure it should be used so glibly. For one thing, this text is for Christians only. Only those who love God, that is, those who've experienced and responded to the love of God in Jesus Christ. And Romans 8.28 has become so popular with those who don't have faith in Christ at all, it can lead to a false security. Believers, however, can wrap their souls in it. It does not mean that everything is going to turn out in life okay. It doesn't say that. It's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, rather, that everything will work out for our ultimate good. Those words have an eternal rather than a temporal goal in mind. And a temporal good in mind. Swedish Lutheran Bishop Anders Nygren writes this, Just as the present eon is to be followed by eternity, it has already been preceded by eternity. 
Only when we see our present existence set in God's activity, which goes from eternity to eternity, do we get it in the right perspective. Then man comes to see that everything that comes to the Christian in this life, and consequently the sufferings of the present too, must work for the good to him. The specific good will be seen when we're glorified as we're conformed to the image of Christ. The Christian should not view present distresses and reversals as ultimately destructive. In some manner, they're preparing us for the future revelation of Jesus and for his glory. At that time, we will clearly see what we've always known, that those who love God, all things, pleasures, pains, experiences, disappointments, suffering, will work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we have a great confidence, my friends. It's really true. God causes everything that happens to us, even the evil inflicted by others to us, to work out for every believer's eternal good. And so this immense confidence rests on the certainty of our redemption, which began before time according to God's foreknowledge and will beyond time with our glorification. These verses 29 and 30 that Sean ended up with last week are scholarly called the golden chain of redemption. Notice that the emphasis is all on God's work. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Everything that happens in life is used by God to prepare us in some way for the future revelation of glory. The immense certainty of this rests on the fact that everything is of God. Each of the five links of the golden chain of our redemption is his work. We are going to be like Jesus. The family resemblance both in body and spirit is unmistakable. So Paul asks the natural question. That kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? All right, when you think about it. Oh, it's going to get better. Verse 31. Because here's the question. So what do we do with this? So he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The story is told that during the crisis of the Civil War, a timid civilian sought out President Lincoln and said, Oh, Mr. President, I am most anxious that the Lord should be on our side. To which Lincoln responded, That gives me no anxiety at all. The thing I worry about is being on the Lord's side. Lincoln was correct in his application at that moment, but in the context of salvation, there's no doubt. God is for you. Melanchthon found this to be true. When Luther stood tall at Worms, it was, in, to use Carlyle's words, the greatest moment in the modern history of man. But there was another man with Luther. Philip Melanchthon, a shy man, a peaceful man, 
who was there because he believed if God is for us, who can be against us? So applying this text logically, you know, if Luther and, and Melanchthon were Americans, they would have made t-shirts and sold them with that verse on there. If God is for us, who can be against us? Here, wear this. We're going to stand before the emperor. If God is for us, who can be against us? So you place that, you push that text logically to the height of confidence. Think about it, brothers and sisters. It means more than God being previously disposed to us. It means he is for us in all that he does. We may be defeated at the moment, but evil will not prevail. We're always being led to victory in Christ, for God is for us. God is for Gene Sherman. God is for, put your name in the blank. That's who we are. And so therefore, for the rest of the passage, he gives us three reasons why he's for us. Here they are. Verse 32. The first reason is, is that God will withhold nothing in taking care of us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, we're, we, we have to take this logic to its logical conclusion. Since God gave his only son for us, he will withhold nothing from us. For the sake of illustration, suppose on a whim you visited Central Cadillac downtown. And you entered a drawing to win a brand new CT5 Blackwing. Just in case you didn't know, that's a $90,000 car. All right? So you go to pick it up, and they say, it's all yours, free. Take it home, but they don't give you the keys. It's ridiculous that the car is yours. Whatever you need to drive it is yours. Well, likewise, my friends, since we have received the incredible gift of God's Son and His salvation in Him, it's ridiculous to suppose God will not give us everything we need, everything to flourish in this life. Peter reminds of this in First, uh, first Peter 1, chapter, verse 2 and 3. He tells us, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We've got all things. Because of the immensity of the gift of God in Jesus' Son, God's Son Jesus, we may be confident that He will freely give us all that we need to flourish today, tomorrow, the rest of our lives, and into eternity. All things. Scottish hymn writer Horatius Bonner wrote it this way. What will he not bestow? Who freely gave this mighty gift on bought, unmerited, unheeded, unsought? What will he not bestow? He spared not his son. Tis this that silences each rising fear. Tis this that bids the hard thought disappear. He spared not his son. He will give you everything you need to flourish in him, no matter what you're going through. Second reason why God, nothing can stand against us, is that God will not allow anything to condemn us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If accusations are brought against us, we need not fear, for the, charge, the charges are silenced by the upraised, pierced hands of our intercessor. I told you Jesus is praying for you. You didn't believe me. Right here. The intercessor is interceding for you constantly. If we're to be condemned... It will be over Christ's dead and resurrected body. No, those charges are silenced. That's actually the basis for our salvation. How's that for confidence? I mean, my friends, the odds are stacked in your favor. The judge, the jury, the defense attorney, and the prosecutor are all on your side. Okay? It's been rigged in your favor in Christ. All right? The court is adjourned, innocent, not guilty. How's that for confidence? Third point, the reason why we, there's nothing that can stand against us is that God will not allow anything to separate us from his love. God is with you. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, Paul quoting our psalm today, verse 22, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. End quote. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul is speaking autographically in verse 35. He's been through all that. He knows of what he speaks, having experienced it all here. And he affirms that none of this, absolutely nothing, can separate us from Christ's love. He quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, to show that the tribulation believers face are nothing new but are simply characteristics of having faith in Jesus Christ. He's making sure, he's making sure we don't buy into the prosperity gospel. He concludes that, therefore, because of this, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Literally, could be translated, you are super conquerors, super victors. More than conquerors. That's what we are now and how we will guard ourselves throughout all eternity. It's like stepping on the football field and you blew the competition away 75 to nothing. They got nothing on you. And that's what motivates us to walk with Christ, my friends. <laughs> it's amazing love. There's no charges against you. You're free. He's always with you. He's for you. He will hold you fast. That's why we, we join the little churches. That's why we're here. That's why we, we minister that cranky neighbor. Just take them some cookies. See what happens. Some of them will applaud. Some of them won't. That's all right. But that's why we do what we do in the Christian life, to bring heaven on earth to people. Like Chrysostom. 
who was brought before the Roman emperor who threatened to banish him if he kept preaching the gospel in Constantinople. Imagine standing before the Roman emperor as a, just, a, just, just a pastor in the church. The golden throat of Constantinople replies, you can't banish me from this world. It's my father's house. The emperor says, I will kill you. He says, nah, you can't, for my life is hid with Christ and God. He said, then I'll take away your treasures. He says, no, you can't take away my treasure because my treasure is in heaven. I'll drive you away from man and you won't have any friends then. No, I have a friend in heaven who can't, I can't be separated from. I defy you, emperor. There's nothing you can do to hurt me. So, in concluding, Paul, like he's on a great European cathedral, starts to pull out all the stops. He's like old Uncle Ted on the organ, rolling up his sleeves, and he's got to let her rip. And so he says these amazing words with great emotion. He switches to the first person. Did you notice that? He's going from us to I. For I am sure. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death will not pull me away from God's love. Neither will life with all its attractions, all the spiritual forces that come upon us, benevolent or malevolent. Look that one up nor anything in time, nor power, nor the height of heaven, or the depth of hell. Nothing else. Disappointment, neuroses, diseases, broken relationships, financial crises, mental illnesses. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. For you are a super conqueror in him. A hundred years after Melanchthon, John Bunyan sat at his desk in a deep depression, whethering he could con continue on. Worrying about the future when verse 31 came to his mind. He said, I remember that I was sitting at a neighbor's home and was very sad, and that word came to me. What, will we say, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That was a help to me, he writes. May it be a help to all of us. History records that when Melanchthon sensed that he was dying, he asked to be placed on a traveling bed in his study because that's where he was happiest. When the pastor read Romans 8.31, Melanchthon exclaimed, Read it again. So the pastor read it again. If God is for us, who can be against us? Melanchthon murmured, that's it. That's it. This text had always been the greatest comfort to him, and it was the greatest comfort to him in his darkest hour of life. When destruction threatened, he comforted himself again by reciting, if God is for us, who can be against us? You're a super conqueror. God will always be with you. He is for you. 
He's pleading your case. The best is yet to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this word. We thank you for Paul not only reminding the Roman church, this mixed bag of Jews and Gentiles, uh, that they have no condemnation upon them. And that they can be victorious in this life, even in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of life being hard. And we pray, Lord, that you would brand this on our hearts today. That we truly are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Because we simply believe it, we trust it, and therefore we can walk full wholehearted lives of devotion unto you, Lord, for your glory and that we might flourish in that gospel is our prayer, for in Jesus' name we pray, amen.